in January this year, Jeff Wilson got in touch to let me know they were enjoying the podcast and that they would like to donate a large tranche of Antarctic literature to me to aid in the series. They also mentioned their experiences in Antarctica, which kicked off as a 17-year-old heading south aboard the Nella Dan as a Queen Scout. Uh, the Scout Association of Australia used to send two Queen Scouts south each summer with the Australian Antarctic Division. Sadly, a program that had finished by the time I was awarded my Queen Scout. But he went on to work for the Australian Antarctic Division as a glaciologist and took part in several significant events within the Australian Antarctic narrative. So besides being keen to receive the gift of books, I was very keen to speak to Jeff and to share his experiences with Ice Coffee listeners. He very graciously had my eldest and I to lunch one day, and while Zaria played with their dog, I spoke to Jeff about his association with Antarctica. Really happy to talk to you. You don't have to record, um, but I, I don't really. Yeah, I'm not, I don't see how it fits into the stuff that you do. It's of interest to me, right? And that's what the series is. Is effectively, yeah. I'm I'm making the series with me as the target audience. Okay. So, it's why it's a bit hodgepodge that. Um, vacillates between narrative and interview or just a soundscape that I found interesting mm-hmm. and I was, I was thinking about this at the art symposium that they're all, they're all talking about their practice, their, their art their mode they, they describe as their practice mm-hmm. and I, I went south and I practiced my art yeah. and I was trying to Think, you know, what does my practice comprise? And yeah. sort of chaos, <laughs> just <laughs> absolute. But so does theirs. They're almost scientific in the way that they, well, some of them that I've witnessed in work, um, in action, are borderline scientists in the way that they approach their media and their method. And so the fact that the series starts and stops according to what's going on in my life and changes its focus every now and then to talk to someone that went on a ship that I found interesting. Or yeah. It's all just because it's what interests me. Yeah. And if it happens to interest other people, that's great. Mm-hmm. But I'm not trying to woo sponsors or advertisers so it doesn't need to have the polish or the, the through lines that other series tend to generate yeah. as they progress i know a lot of podcasters that started doing a hobby and it became their living yeah yeah and the product has to change to try and fit what advertisers or sponsors are looking for yeah and for me it's just i found that really interesting Mm -hmm. and between our correspondence and what you've just hinted at today i think you've got um experiences that i would love to hear more about and insights that I would love to gain and I think the people that have listened to the series to this point are enough like me that they will find it valuable too so you're not the first person that said oh what do I contribute how how does this fit with your it's like because it's interesting Mm -hmm. so just if you could start by telling me how you became interested in Antarctica Um, 
<coughs> do we need to shut the door because of things like that? I mean, we don't get many aircraft in the <laughs> No, it'll, it'll pass and we'll... Yeah. Um, it's, it, I was interested in your comment because um, I, I was born in 54 and so, um, you know, the, the, the next 10 years or, well, next 15 years really, um, was that transition, uh, we didn't have television until after Kennedy was shot and, you know, it, so we were a British colony and so a lot of the things that we read and you listened to as a, as a kid was very British, which is very different to what our kids grew up, where the American stuff is a very dominant. So um, there was a lot of history, uh, you know, sense of um, exploration and adventure. You, know, I, you would, you know, you wouldn't listen to Beagles or <coughs> you know, any of that sort of crap, basically. Um, but, uh, you know, it was interesting at the time. Um, so, polar exploration, you know, the, that romantic age, if you like, or heroic age, um, was fascinating to read about. And then when I was at high school, which over in the Western District, we had someone who had wintered with the division, but he came through and was showing Fuchs Transantarctic expedition and um, so I was year 10 or form 4 I think it was at that stage and went along and you know, it was all very exciting and I was in the scouts and of course um, I think we just started doing stuff for Queen Scouts and at that stage the division was offering two slots a year for people who had just become Queen Scouts to go to Macquarie Island on the changeover. Um, so I finished my um, Queen Scout in, you know, graduated or you know, completed it all in early 71 and you know, the division advertised for... Um, people interested in going on the Macquarie Island changeover. So this was... Uh, uh, no, it was, it was Australia-wide. Um, and I applied and I was successful. So myself and another guy from Tassie, um, you know, did the Macquarie Island changeover. I was 17 and a half. I did my VCE on the ship. Uh, you know, and at that stage, you know, parents had to contact Lloyd's of London to get public liability insurance for me to go. And, um, and fortunately, Dad was in the Victorian Education Department. At, he was in primary, but you know, just to be able to do your VCE on a ship, um, and you know, had to get the expedition leader to agree to supervise and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, um, and so I did the 71 72 um, changeover at Macquarie Island and got to see the place firsthand. And, you know, it was really exciting as a, uh, as a 17 and a half year old, and 
Um, yeah, we some <laughs> lots of older expeditioners there from all of the ages, of course, and they were saying. Um, I was interested, so they were saying, oh, meteorology is a good way to go south. And so I was planning on becoming a teacher. Um, I was on a student ship, so I went to Melbourne Uni, and because I was going to be a teacher, it didn't really... Uh, and in, in the sciences, so I had to do maths and physics. Um, but I didn't want to teach chemistry, so I did what is compulsory now, I did breadth subjects. So I did a little bit of geology and I did because I was interested and I started doing meteorology and, um, and then part of meteorology was glaciology and lo and behold the division hired and glaciology was at Melbourne Uni Met Department. So I did my honours and which was looking at um, oxygen isotopes in ice cores um, and to because there's um, the ratio between oxygen uh, yeah oxygen with deuterium in it and without deuterium change is temperature dependent so um, you could basically look at climate change so this was in 75 um, and you know, we used all the ice cores, and so I said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to go down as a glaciologist and um, you know, drill the next set of ice cores. Um, and so I applied as an expeditioner, and they knew me, and so at 21, I was a glaciologist heading for Casey for 12 months, um, you know, in charge of a drilling program and, you know, these... <laughs> The old, old, much older Dizos, much wiser, much more cynical, and I was had all the stars in my eyes, and so that's why I was saying earlier that um, you know my first, well, my first winter in Antarctica was a real eye opener and you know, a very sobering experience because it's uh, um, yeah, just having all your sharp edges rounded off was isn't necessarily the easiest thing but it was a great experience and um, came back and uh, I, and I worked really well with one of the Dizos who um, took a lot of interest in the drilling rig and um, initially we were in a couple of separate uh, um, separate caravans which was really awkward logistically um, Henderson sledges have you yeah okay so you know we had these vans on top of them and um, Egon had really big ideas and you, have you seen the old Otago sleds that the Americans left so um, so the Henderson um, sleds were steel framed and this had like big ski runners, whereas um, the Otago sleds were much more like a semi-trailer and they had two sets of fully independent skis on them, but the, the, the top twisted. Um, but they towed much easier, you could, you could load them up much more. So um, over the winter, there we took the um, vans off the... Henderson sleds and mounted on this Otago sled and then we were able to put um, a tunnel between them so it was much easier to set up and 
use um, and we went out and did another couple of ball hauls um, and came back to Australia um, and we were sort of processing and then setting up the drill van to go down again. Um, so this was 78 and then 79, uh, but you know, it's, uh, so you were five, I think, and you've, you've heard about the Razor Gang, which was Malcolm, so you know, we'd gone from Labor, Elvis died when I was down <laughs> south, um, and then uh, the Liberal Party had got in, and of course they were starting to cut the public service. And in um, late June, in 1979, I got two letters from the government. One was, congratulations, you've got a polar medal, which was very nice and totally unexpected. Um, and the other one was, um, you finish, your employment finishes next week because we were temporary, um, because of the Razor Gang. But, um, as it turns out, um, I was then brought back on for the division um, for a three-month period, and we to go back to Antarctica to Antarctica and uh, reinstrument the ball holes um, because um, we had basically used all the you know you have to leave six or seven um, turns on the on the drum or otherwise you can't pull it up. So we we'd got to four eighty-five meters and. Um, and the top of the borehole moves more than the bottom. And so by measuring the change in inclination, you can get an idea of what the uh, velocity profile of the ice sheet is through the depths. Um, so myself and this um, Dezo, um, we were flown to New Zealand um, on Qantas, and then we caught uh, one of the US flights down to McMurdo and you probably did the same with the New Zealanders um, and this was just after the Air New Zealand flight had gone into McMurdo and so you know, we spoke to people who had been involved in some of the rescue and went over to Scott Base and um, and yeah so we, we had that that experience and then we were flown over to Casey which was good and, um, <laughs> um, the it, 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 so there were there were two of us and we had someone from the base so that we ended up being a party of three that then went back out onto Law Dome for the summer and <laughs> um, our instrumentation was a bicycle frame um, with pedals and it drove a big drum that had all the instrumentation on it that we then set up in um, one of the, <laughs> the old vans. That, uh, it all worked beautifully. You know, you know, it was a bit like we were talking about with the Russians, that it was all eminently repairable um, with very basic equipment, but did a reasonable job. Um, and... So we were out there for three months and met up with the Travis that was coming back from inland near Vostok, um, had Christmas with them. Uh, and then 
in January 1980, the Americans flew in again and we flew out with them and, um, and back to McMurdo and uh, we had the option then to fly back to New Zealand or wait a few days and go back on one of the US Coast Guards to Melbourne. And so, of course, why not go on a Coast Guard ship if you've got the choice? And, uh, and that was really fortuitous because we then threw our names in the hat and we got out to the dry valley. So, um, and, you know, there's that uh, porter book that is downstairs, of, you know, the photos of the dry valleys. And, you know, that's, it was just incredible to be able to fly through the, there and just see that landscape. It was so different to everything that we'd seen to, to that day. And then to go on, it was one of the North Wind class, so ex-World War II um, icebreakers. And um, in some ways it was like being back in the field in Casey because the, you know you nearly had to get out of your bunk to turn. I mean, you would have seen that. The you know you, you could turn over in your bunks, but it was all very cramped and crowded, and you know it was all the navy sh- two minute shower. And you know, we we were very privileged, and we were in the wardroom for meals, and yeah, but a really interesting experience. Um, and. Yeah. Take some time for your tea and your scone yeah. and get cold. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the, it, I think, you know, I, I, I'm, my Antarctic experience um, has been really interesting. But I, and I think what adds to that is the people that you meet. Um, so you've probably heard of Mount King in Enderby Land. Okay, well, um, I wintered with Peter King. But um, you may or may not know that Peter King was on the John Biscoe as a radio operator in 47 or something like this. And and wintered, you know, was at Hope Bay for a winter. So, you know, unfortunately, he's dead now. But if you... that. Um, so he had all these epic tales of what it was like to um, work in that really post-war um, period of Antarctica. And so, uh, you know, having the chance to talk to him and, you know, he I think he'd lost his partner before he came down in 77 um, because he'd been out of it for 20-odd years. Um and so it was a way to um, sort of try and get himself back together. And, you know, it was really interesting. We kept up contact with him for a few years. I'm currently reading about and preparing my notes about the voyage south to establish Morton Station. And it's mm-hmm. the first time that Philip Law had commissioned the Danish company that the led Ritz, to the, yep. um, the Nella Dan that yep. you mentioned was that the first ship no. that you sailed on? Um, um, yeah, Nala was the first, um, Macquarie Island. And then Tala, we went to Casey. Um, but um, it was the Magadan that he would have taken into, you know, which they then sold on. But, um, you know, <laughs> uh, 
in, in terms of, I, I, I know what the comparison is. Um, you know the movie Forrest Gump? Yep. Uh, I feel like Forrest Gump sometimes. Um, he's 80, uh, so at the end of 79, um, I, the division uh, uh, basically said, you know, we'll bring you back, do this job, and then you finish. But in the meantime, I applied because I'd done meteorology at um, uni, then Bureau of Meteorology was another potential employer, and I'd applied to do their meteorologist course um, and before I went back down south. And while I was down there, I'd heard that I'd been accepted. Now, that was... Um, because uh, my father, he um, was quite irate when the government sacked us. And it wasn't just me, there was quite a few of us. And so he, he wrote off to the Minister of Science, because he liked a lot writing to politicians, and that was Jim Webster. And, and Dad got this... Um, great letter back from Jim Webster, oh, you know, it's government policy and your son has done this great job and da 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 da. So when I applied for the job with the Bureau of Meteorology, what a better reference letter than a, <laughs> a letter from the Minister of Science. <laughs> um, n knowing the people that interviewed me, it probably didn't have much sway, but it was it's still a nice thing to have, which is somewhere down in the files there. Uh, but... Um, so I, I then started work with the Bureau of Meteorology and as a junior forecaster in Hobart and um, then uh, my partner moved down and um, it, it was good work but um, you could see that in 10 years time you'd, you may have gone from um, junior grade to acting in the next grade up because... Uh, um, Hobart was very... People loved living there, so there wasn't much turnover in staff. And um, the public service wasn't growing, so there were no new positions. Um, and a job came up in the training centre back in Melbourne. And uh, <coughs> a friend there rang me and said, oh, would you like to come back and do, as it, do this job for 12 months? And um, our first child was due that year so we said yeah sure we'll come back and it's good for make much easier for grandparents um, because their travel was much more expensive in those days and um, we came back and um, it was a great job teaching the tech officers um, so these were observers and they wanted to go on to become um, technical officers so they did a lot of the forecasting from the airports and so talked to the pilots did all the briefing and stuff and in some ways you know, arguably very arguably um, depending who you are um, they were much more practical um, than the meteorologists were in the first couple of years out because it was much more practical course um, and a job came up to go south for six months to... Um, this was the start of... Well, probably already been there, but so this was 84. And they were looking at intercontinental flights from Australia to the Antarctic. And so they were looking at... They'd done 
studies for landing strips and they'd had equipment in there to compact it and just see what the loads were. And, um, and the year before, uh, one of my supervisors in Hobart had been down and he'd done the forecasting. So you had to sit at Casey and then write TAFs for this non-existent airstrip um, at Langan Junction, which is you know, a couple of hundred metres elevation up and 20k inland or something. Um, and there was a lot of instrumentation there, so I, I did that the following year. And, um, the, and that was the year that the division first used the iceberg. Um, have you come across the iceberg? Yep. And uh, the ship uh, was being, it was based out of Hamburg and it was running late, so they flew us to South Africa. <laughs> And they, so, and we got to Cape Town about. Pete, um, I'll call you back in a little while. Okay, thanks, Pete. Bye. Um, yeah, so we got there a few days before the ship, so we're, we had. Um, time to look around Cape Town and, you know, it was on my bucket list because my grandfather had um, spent time there um, immediately after World War One, and, you know, lots of family history and stuff. So it was really interesting to have the chance to just see it. And, you know, Cape Town's such an iconic space anyway. It really does echo that Forrest Gump narrative, doesn't it? Yeah, just yeah, exactly. In the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, um. And so um, we got on the iceberg and um, the the owner was there and uh, uh, Gunther, someone or other, and, and Evold, whatever, the captain. And, and, of course, they wanted to impress the division of how good their new ship was. And, you know, we went into Mawson and they broke in through ice. And, oh, we're much better than the Naladan. Uh, but, yeah, a few of us um, who were a little bit, um, maybe somewhat biased the other day, the other way, as a stir, we'd stand on the deck and say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you know this is okay, but the Nella would do much better. <laughs> But they were all, it was all very good-natured. and So we got into Mawson and, uh, well, we didn't get into the harbour. We got it within 30k and they flew in, but this was in October or something, so uh, it was a good effort. Um, and then they called into Moon, which we were talking about before, and uh, once again we had to fly in, and uh, it's fortunate to be able to go ashore. And You know, it, it, you haven't been into Murnie, have you? Uh, when you fly in, the first thing you notice is you know the airstrip, and there's all these dead aeroplanes <laughs> parked along the, the airstrip, and you know, and they wrap them um, for parts, and well, they were at that stage. I don't know that they still are. Um, because I think things are tightened up even further. Um, and you know, visiting the Russians, there's always lots of vodka, and but it was and the station was it was comfortable but it was warm it was very uh, the Australian stations at that stage were male orientated as well but this was very you know and a bit grimy and stuff but um, 
know, everything was solid. You know, you were talking about um, the old Russian aircraft were solid. Well, everything there was solid. It wasn't necessarily pretty, but it worked and it could be repaired. So, um, yeah, that was it, that was really good to be able to see that. Um, and we got through to Casey and we did the um, um, the forecasting for the summer but um, and you know got to we had helicopters support there because there were biology programs and the glaciers were doing stuff um, but they're also running, uh, allowing people to go out to um, the offshore islands for a bit of rest and recreation so offshore from Casey there's a uh, an island called Nelly Island and because of the um, petrels uh, and they flew us out there and um, so a number of groups had flown out there and it came time and I went out there but of course um, not being a great meteorologist I happened to pick the time that we got blizzed out there and the tent tent like a typical polar pyramid it flapped and it started to tear down the edges um, on the on the sticks um, and you know it was all solid ice so really difficult to dig in to protect the damn thing um, so we had to dig an igloo in the middle of the night well and, and it was the middle of the night but it was still light and uh, not an igloo we had to dig a snow cave into the thing which not necessarily the experience you want, but uh, at, at the time, but it was, um, yeah, it all worked out. And they came out a couple of days later to pick us up. So, yeah, as I said, very forest, forest gumpish. And, um, and the next year was the um, famous Antarct uh, Naladan descent. So um, we'd moved back to Hobart and the thereafter someone with experience and the cap I'd worked with the captain of the Nella before and he was very happy for the bureau to have me on um, as the forecaster and we would be away six weeks so we had a two month old daughter at that stage and my partner was um, very accommodating and said oh six weeks yeah that should be okay and um, we got to Heard Island, which was also on my bucket list, and you know, got to go into the station. I didn't get ashore at uh, Spit Point, but we were there and dropping off bios to do their work. I did get a helicopter flight around and up towards the summit, which was spectacular. Um, and then we went south, and uh, the idea was to go into the pack ice, and they were tagging Weddell seals and weighing them because they were weaning at that stage. And so it was all about uh, looking at population counts and things. So uh, Knowles Kerry, have you come across Knowles? The name's familiar. I've yeah, he, he was a chief scientist, but he came out of the more. Um, I think he was doing birds and stuff when I first met him in 72 um, and then he became chief scientist later on um, so and we were in really close to the top of Enderby land and um, the were in really brash icy stuff and then the wind dropped 
and boom, froze. And that's where we were for, well, we, I think we left on the 16th of September and we got back into Hobart in early January after, uh, so the iceberg initially came in um, to transfer some passengers off and then they nearly got stuck and nearly got run down by an ice, iceberg. Um, and then the Shirazai, the Japanese icebreaker, um, was sent in to pull us out. In, in the meantime, <laughs> uh, we'd been out with crowbars around the side of the ship to try and you know, make up some area uh, so the ship could go backwards and forwards to try and ram its way out. But you know, we, I think after a week we'd made 100 metres or something, so it just wasn't going to work. And so the Shirazay came in and um, you know, sort of ran around us and, and then threw a line and um, <laughs> went to full ice power and the bollard popped off the front of the Nelodine. <laughs> so they had to reassess that. And, um, but they eventually got us out and you know, they came along. You know, once we were out into more open water, they came alongside and we were invited on board the Shirazay, which was... Good. I'm not a whiskey drinker, but the Japanese um, whiskey is very nice. <laughs> um, and yeah, we came back to um, Hobart then. So that was yeah a bit longer than the six weeks that I was supposed to be away. You've got some of those press cuttings and things in the pile. I met one of the divers from that voyage once, okay. and yeah. that's how I, I knew the the basic outline of the story but it's yeah. it's there I know that it's there in my offing that yeah. the reading that I'm doing is leading me to the Melodan right. resentment yeah. and it's exciting to meet another person that had that experience yeah. and yeah. to hear their perspective on it yeah and um, I mean the I mentioned before Fred Jacker and that he did the Molson Diaries and I'd worked with his son uh, Tim Jacker and um, oh Joe as we call him um, and he and his father became a little bit separated um, oh, the, the, his parents divorced but um, Joe was in Melbourne and didn't get on all that well with his dad at that stage I think um, but um, yeah, Joe became a technical officer with the division and then a technical officer supporting glaciology and um, worked on, did a lot of work on sea ice and eventually um, did a PhD and became a research scientist in his own right rather than supporting other people. But um, Joe was on that um, besetment expedition as well and... Um, so, yeah, there's a number of people if you want to talk to, we can you know, give you names. Uh, you know, there was a guy, Howie, Howie Burton, who was in radio in the division at that stage. Um, he had a 16mm movie camera, and I remember seeing the footage of um, the bollard. He'd captured that, which was a pretty classic thing to do. Yeah. And so then, then the next time I went south was, um, so we, we 
a, a permanent job came back in the training centre and um, and for the forecasting uh, working in the training centre in uh, Melbourne was fantastic the people that I really got on well with and you were encouraged to develop your understanding and you know you were given a lot of latitude whereas in a forecasting room it's very uh, well particularly at that time it, it was very procedural and you know there, there were certain things that you had to do which well, that's fine uh, you had to give lectures in the training centre as well but there was a lot more latitude for you to have some flair and follow your own interests and stuff so when that job came up um, in 86, we ended up moving back to Melbourne and an added advantage was at that stage, the Bureau's Antarctic program was all based out of Melbourne. So uh, I thought, oh, well, we'll go back there and, um, and the training centre, but there's also an option of potentially getting into the more involved in, as an ongoing basis in the Antarctic program uh, only to find that the Bureau then transferred the Antarctic program to Hobart the next year but that was alright um, and so I then went south in 88, 89 um, and once again as a forecaster at, um, well this time work, well it was working on the ship and that's when the Giles Kershaw and Dick Smith flights were on and we had to support them um, so a guy called Steve Pendlebury and Hugh Hutchinson Hugh Hutchinson was the regional director for the meteorology in Tasmania and Steve was the senior forecaster uh, and myself on the ship and you know, we had to make the call and we did and they got through which was great and then once they were on the, the continent then it, the support came over so they flew into Mawson where I was based and then they went on to shower and uh, I think from Mawson they may have gone back to Davis at one stage as well. And, um, so I never got to fly with them but certainly got to talk with them and they'd come into the office for briefings and stuff. Which So that was an added bonus apart from just all the helicopter work where um, there were a lot of people out at the Prince Charles Mountains at that stage. So um, The... Yeah, it was always interesting, and um, they moved us between Davis and Casey. So I've seen all of the Australian stations now. I haven't been to Commonwealth Bay on the ground, um, but uh, at Davis, I don't know what you know about the meteorology there, but you know it's on that big dry area, and um, I think the runway program's been cancelled, hasn't it? The it's been on again, off again, and then they cancelled it again. But um, where the ice sheet comes down and hits the the actual rock, the Vestfold Hills, you get these things called hydraulic jumps. And there's a classic 57 you know, IGY paper um, that one of the original Bureau of Antarctic Forecasters put together about this hydraulic jump coming down and... Um, you know, and the snow comes down and then it just goes up vertically. So it's where the, the airflow um, changes. Um, thing. And you, it, it's a bit like in some of the tidal rivers, they have a tidal bore. If you, oh, you, would have, you were in that up in the Kimberley. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's like that but in the atmosphere. 
And so um, if aircraft are flying um, in that area, then you know, things change dramatically because they're flying along like this way and they've got a bit of headwind and then suddenly um, they've got this huge uplift and um, if they're not ready for it, they get thrown up and then they overcorrect and they come out the other side and you know, they're heading towards the ground very quickly. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting to see that, and in in fact we'd found, and it does happen at Casey. Um, we saw it, the the same sort of phenomena, and you know I ended up doing my MSc on that airflow around um, Casey in in the very early modelling days, but yeah, it was, but yeah, um, yeah. So it's, it's and, and then um, I was in meteorology and ended up running, after many years, running the training centre in Melbourne. And um, the, there's an organisation called the World Meteorological Organisation, which is like the union for all of the MET services around the world. And it's a UN organisation. And I was fortunate enough to get a job um, they're running their education program, so we went off to um, Europe for nine years, and there was always some Antarctic stuff happening there, and you'd sort of keep track of it, and you'd get to meet some of the people. Um, but after, as I said, after I retired, the World Weather Research Program were running this 10-year polar prediction program and they asked me to come in and help provide more administrative or secretariat support. So um, it sort of nearly brought me back full circle to where I started. So, yeah, it's been an interesting ride. <laughs> you asked me earlier about how I became interested in Antarctica and when you were recounting the Dick Smith Giles Kershaw flight yep. from Australia to the continent, mm -hmm. it reminded me that one of my earliest exposures to Antarctica came from my Wheat Bix cards. Okay. Which drew on Hubert Wilkins or It was it was a series of photographs of a voyage by the Dick Smith Explorer. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Down to um, uh, Commonwealth Bay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's perhaps the earliest thing I can put a hand to that's made it from my childhood to the present day. I can still yeah. find those Weepix cards in my in boxes of stuff mm -hmm. um, that really sparked my interest and. Yep. I think it was about the third series of Weetbix cards that I'd started collecting mm -hmm. and it was the one that sort of like fired the imagination. Mm -hmm. um, so he's in and out of the narrative that I'm developing for okay. future episodes, just his role in aviation in Antarctica, okay. yep. but also in preserving Hubert Wilkins' yep. legacy okay. because yep. he's such a passionate aviation historian mm -hmm. um, I've corresponded with him a bit I haven't met him but I hope to right. at some point and just um, he's been a very key player yeah. in my but not necessarily one that people would think about um, 
if when you think about Antarctica, you don't Dick Smith doesn't necessarily jump out out to you. Well, I think he's like Hubert Wilkins in that sense that he is he's done a lot mm-hmm. and he's not necessarily remembered for the parts that I find most interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, even on the Kimberley trip recently, I gave a lecture about aviation in the Kimberley okay. and there's a couple of key events prior to the Second World War mm. that very few people know well and one of them is the Coffee Royal Affair in which Charles Kingsford Smith force landed in the Kimberley okay. and his friend whose name currently eludes me um, flew out to his aid okay. but the aircraft broke down in the Tanami and he and his mechanic died okay. and that story is likely to have disappeared into the ether if it weren't for Dick Smith's efforts to find the wreck of the aircraft okay. and establish a plaque and yep. bring the remains of that aircraft back for a museum right. so Yes, he had an electronics empire, mm-hmm. but he was just always doing something yeah. that I tended to find more interesting than mm. being an entrepreneur. It's just um, well, yeah. and then you know that electronics empire really enabled him, funded him to be able to do other things, in, well, including Australian Geographic. That, that's that's exactly the the sort of thing I find so fascinating. Is like I know many people that would do amazing things if they weren't tied yeah. to a job that they needed to have to pay the bills yeah. and the opportunity to be an entrepreneur in that vein I think no longer exists I think you've got to be a, a tech bro or okay. a farmer bro to yeah. achieve that sort of wealth in the in the current economy and that doesn't appeal to, <laughs> to anyone but the sort of people that end up being farmer bros and tech bros yeah. um, but yeah just a, a very interesting player yeah, and and, and um, you, you, know, um, you meet all sorts of different people, and you will have through all of your jobs as well. But uh, there was one radio guy. So we're talking about days where you'd have sixteen films in a camera, you know, so, um, or 36, um, or 20, 20 or 36. <laughs> uh, there's one of the radio operators who, um, no, he was a tech, that's right, because he'd been out to Willis Island. So he'd done Willis Island, which is up in, off Cairns, basically, uh, where J.K. Davis established the Met Station. Um, and he'd been from... Willis Island, Casey or Mawson, you know, Hadley, back to Willis Island, back to Casey and Mawson, back to Willis, and uh, he'd captured all of those years on one roll of 20 film. I'm guessing that... Um, you know, one roll of 20 film for you, it would probably do 10 minutes. <laughs> and, you know, even in 77, you know, you spend a lot of time uh, planning for the expedition, you know, what cameras and, um, you know, okay, you've always been able to develop black and white, but uh, then, um, not Kodachrome, uh, Agfa Chrome introduced uh, a the chemicals in the system where you could develop your own colour slides. 
And so I think we were the first or the second year down south where we, you could actually produce your own um, colour slides, not have to wait till the end of the year when you got home and find that you'd had your uh, thumb over the <laughs> aperture of the camera and so you lost all your slides. So it, just, there are amazing people. I've been watching professional photographers at work recently and just it's a completely different industry to what it was in the chemical mm. era. It's the way that people think about capturing an image now is so foreign to what I grew up with and what I trained into. It, it, what, because they... Um, they're aware that they can do a lot more post-production. They, so, yeah. Oh, besides the capacity for post-production, just the, they're not limited to however many exposures. You, if you're, okay. if you're yeah. rolling your own film, you might get a couple of hundred onto a, yeah. a yeah. canister, but yeah. yeah. The store-bought stuff is all 24 and 36. Yeah, okay. And uh, 12. Yeah, who, who ever bought a roll of 12? Well, I, exactly. I, but you know they were expensive. It was, yeah, it was yeah. expensive to buy, expensive to develop, and, and <laughs> whereas uh, you know um, you're not at the stage of grandchildren yet, but we've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, and a minus four-week-old, um, and you know the five-year-old comes up, oh, Granddad, where's your camera? Blah 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 blah, and then uh, you know she um, grabs it and. Um, you, know, you get things like, uh, where is it? Um, not that. Like, so she she takes it and does a self portrait, and then she uses all the editing tools. And you know, she it was Rainbow Day, so she turned it in post processed Rainbow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the year. <laughs> and, and then she turned here. Yeah, so five minutes after it was taken, and you know, it's just you're right. It's it's a very different um, thing. I mean, some of the Earlier photographers did have Polaroids so that they could do a, essentially a test thing, but you didn't see it often. So, no. Uh, yeah. It might be a bit abrupt, and I should have given you forewarning of the question, but is there a single moment that stands out to you in your Antarctic experience that was the most awe-inspiring and is there a single moment that stands out as the most harrowing moment? Oh, har- harrowing is really easy. Um, so, in 1977, um, of eight of us, so two parties, no, six of us, two parties of three, um, we. Sorry, uh, so in 1977 at Casey, we had one dog. So, um, whereas at Mawson, they still had full dogs. And um, so at Casey, if you were, um, if you went out into the field, you either skied, and that was station area, you walked, you man, uh, you know, you manhauled, or you went out with uh, bulldozers, D fives, and you know that meant you had to have a. Um, a, a power van and you had to have fuel and all of that crap. So um, uh, in May, um, six, uh, must, no, it must have been early August, um, it wasn't over midwinter, um, 
six of us were to walk from Casey down to the Browning Peninsula or Manhall uh, because at that stage all the sea ice was in and uh, you know there were huts along the way that you could do it um, and so we set off and um, the the first night to stay we got to the sort of Brown Peninsula and there were, you come across the old RMIT caravans they, so they were designed by RMIT and they're um, all fiberglass um, they weren't well ventilated so the few people there were some carbon monoxide problems particularly when they were running kerosene heaters and things like that um, so there was one of those um, up on the rocks there that you could stay at but we opted to uh, stay on a, a place called Ardry Island which is just off the point and you know, there's a couple of hundred metres of sea ice between the island and the mainland and um, so we camped, both groups camped there and set up our polar pyramids and, um, and then overnight the wind came up and um, the, the other party of three said, okay, they're going to go over to the mainland, but we thought, oh, that's all right, we, it wasn't too bad. And so we opted to stay, but of course it got worse. And, um, the, and once again, um, the, and, and you've been in a polar pyramid in a blizz, yeah. and it just works and it's noisy and you know the material really works um so we're well over 100 knots um so the the tent was still standing and but you know every now and again you would either peek out the door and the sea ice is (laughs) you could see you know bits of the sea ice were starting to move out and so we'd tune the codan because one leg of the codan was out on the sea ice, and if this, it was the same tune, then we knew that the sea ice hadn't gone out. <laughs> and then the, the tent started to slip. And so, you know, they, I've got a slide somewhere with um, the other two, and, and they're all grey and ashen, and one of the guys is saying, if I ever get out of here, I'm going to propose. <laughs> and... So we packed everything up in the middle of this. Uh, so we weren't getting much drifting snow. Um, that had all gone. It was just wind. And um, we packed everything up on the sled and we got it over to the mainland. But, yeah, that that period of, you know, the decision, are we going to stay here or are we going to, um, you know, risk it going there? Because if we stayed, then we weren't sure that... The sea ice, whether the sea ice would be there. Um, so you, you can see why the, the division do a whole lot more field training now. And, you know, I think it was 80, must have been 84 or 5. Um, around Casey, I think it was the, there's a number of, Places where there's little cams where previous expeditions, you know, back in the 50s, had come in and they'd left things as part of their territorial claims. And so um, in the bay to the south of Casey, there's one of those. So we went to have a look at it and 
was getting a bit late in the season, but the sea ice was okay when we went out, but it started to split up. <laughs> and, you know, we were going from flow to flow coming back. That was So those two instances are probably the... You know, that, they were risky, and you can see why the division does what it does now. Um, but I think the most awesome is probably... I mean, the first time you see Antarctica um, and you, you come into... The, the, the sea ice is just spectacular. When you come into a ship and you haven't necessarily been all that well and, you know, and <coughs> the swell modulates, but um, you know, coming into the pack ice, particularly as the sun's going down and you've got this beautiful light, and yeah, that's probably most awe-inspiring. Or you know, seeing McMurdo from the ship, uh, or when we were there, there were killer whales. We were in the we were in on the helicopter trip out to the dry valleys. Um, we went over a pot of killer whales that were working, and so you know we were sitting in the helicopter looking at the killer whales, and there's man Erebus in the background, steam coming off the top of it. Yeah. I, I never got to the South Pole though. Oh, it's... I hear it's not that interesting. No, no, it would be, be, be a big flat barren plain, but... Uh, it would yeah, be the final forest jump yeah. ticket, I think. Yeah. <laughs> You've done just about everything else. Yeah. Yeah. The the story about the sea ice, it it is nightmare fuel to me. Mm. And there's a couple of incidents in the ice coffee narratives offing where I need to tell the story about people that Mm. went out and the tracks just disappeared. And I really find that harrowing. And there are horrible ways to die, and they're quick. Mm. And there are horrible horrible ways to die, and they're quick, and they're torturous. Mm. Impact death, quick, but relatively painless, burning to death quick but excruciating, dying of exposure over the course of days and knowing that there's no way back has got to be um, deeply upsetting. And I'm very glad that we know your story because it had the happy ending it did. Uh, And, and, I mean... um, when we were on the when on the besetment cruise, and as we were saying that um, after lots of discussion with the voyage leader and the captain, and you know they they used to allow us over the side um, to onto the sea ice um, because I used to, I was working with the glaciers anyway, and we were out there measuring the depths and stuff. But um, <laughs> remember people digging around the ship and you know someone crunched through with the, the crowbar and you know they were tired so they just sort of let it there but of course you know there were a thousand metres of water underneath and the crowbar just goes through or uh, you know they had bicycles at Mawson um, and, and they had the ice shots too which were fantastic uh, and you know, puddles on the sea ice aren't like puddles here because they don't necessarily have bottoms. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the sea ice is a very you know, interesting thing. 
I am certain that reading through the trunch of material you've donated to the Ice Coffee um, Library, I'm going to come up with so many more questions about your experiences and time. But um, thank you so much for sharing your insights and making us welcome in your home. It's been an absolute delight, Jeff Wilson. Thank you, Matthew. A pleasure. In his retirement, Jeff became involved in the International Coordination Office for Polar Prediction at the Alfred Wegener Institute. And you can hear more about the fascinating and innovative research programs that body oversaw through the ICE pod. Links on the WordPress page. Jeff put me in touch with one of his Antarctic colleagues, Trevor Hamley, who at the time was in the final throes of preparing the manuscript for his book, Vodka in a Vegemite Jar. I travelled to Anglesey once more and enjoyed another fine feed in company with an Antarctic veteran, and in this case, his partner, Kerry, who features extensively in the text, giving context to the other side of Antarctic isolation. My interview with Trevor will form the focus of next episode, Time to Coincide with the launch of his book. This episode, I'm going to mess with temporality a bit and edit in Jeff's coffee preparations immediately prior to starting the interview, and the episode will close out with With This Ship, a song from a decade ago by The Basics, which still rocks me to my core. I've mentioned before that songs using shipwreck as a metaphor for the end of a relationship or tumultuous personal upheavals are a bit distasteful to me because shipwreck is something that happens to people I know or might happen to me one day. But the song is just too much of a banger to exclude, and I'm really grateful to The Basics for their permission to use it in the series. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and give Hadley Mearsham the wide berth his past behaviour warrants. I guess I was silly to ask you if you wanted a tea. I've been considering cutting down my intake and blood pressure's getting up there. Uh, I, I must admit, I, I did like those first episodes um, when you were um, hugging the kerosene burner and you know, it, it was very evocative. Um, I'm so pleased to hear that from someone that's lived those sorts of experiences. Because it, it was just... Yeah, I, I know, yeah, you're talking about and you can't put in too much stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you were in a hut. Oh, no, there was one episode you were in the tent, I think. There's an episode in the tent. Most of the ones where I'm brewing up the coffee were actually just in the lounge room in Altona. Okay. And I was putting sound effects. Right, okay. As yeah. best I could. But it was just such a simple little mental conceit. To yeah. Give it a bit more flair than just me talking. Yeah, yeah. And I love, I love generating that. Up until about episode 100, and it's like, oh, I'll give this a miss. I'm, I'm going out into these places yeah. a bit more, yeah. and I want to share a bit more of my home with listeners overseas. So yeah. I sort of put it aside now. Yeah. I can go back to a bit. Of the sound yeah. files are all there. It's like matches, yeah, five yeah. different versions of matches, and three different versions of stripping snow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I thought that was really, you know... Thank you.
and there's an episode um, where I return to the dive hut and it's all snowed over, so you hear me shoveling right, snow, okay. which was actually recorded in Antarctica, but then edited, post- edited into the lounge room sound effects. Right, okay. <laughs> so okay. It started to mess with my head, it's like, what am I actually doing? <laughs> And, and so, you know, um, in 50 years' time, will there be someone saying, oh, this is an interesting podcast. Let's have a review and analysis of this. <laughs> oh, that's... Um, I was thinking of that the other day in terms of how there's now another wreck at the Titanic that yeah, yeah. hopefully people won't want to go and visit the Titan. Yeah, yeah. The name will have to get shorter. Yeah. Titan. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you like working in the tropics? I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. I thought I would be sleepy and uncomfortable at all times and your body just adapts. Yeah. And the landscapes were wild. Those, yeah. those pictures barely do it any justice. And the fact that there's just reptiles everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like I love my snakes and lizards. Yeah. Don't see enough of them. Right. And up there it's just, oh, skin and gecko. Oh, I thought you might have been talking about the slightly larger reptiles. I've never seen them outside of zoos before. Right. And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about that experience. Yeah. The first time you see a decent-sized crocodile yeah. in the water near your boat, and it's just, wow, this is this is a whole other yeah. realm. It was wild. Yeah, um, up on, um, you know, as I said, we've just been up to um, Cape York, and... We saw some freshwater crocs um, right inland in Queensland, um, a place called Cobold Gorge, Cobold Gorge, which is on the western side of the Great Divide, but still quite high. Um, there are about a dozen in this place there. Um, but up on the Cape, we never actually laid eyes on them, but they were certainly aware around because. We're in one of the big national parks and people had seen a croc up there and you know, where we were camped up near the tip. Um, it was a crocodile that was supposed to swim up and down the beach in the evening just before sunset and one the uh, first day we were there someone had a drone up and they could see it on the drone but couldn't see it from the shore. I got into the habit of just thinking that there's always one within 10 metres yeah. of the zodiac and mentally that was important to me because... <clears throat> that way, someone's hat blows off. No, don't reach into that. I'll get it with a boat hook. Yeah, and just okay. always yeah. doing the practice that there is a crocodile oh, yeah. reach of me. Yeah, yeah. Because the <laughs> yeah, no, 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 yeah. And watching one either surface or submerge without a ripple. Okay. Because the scoots are arranged on the back that they're almost um, cancelling out vortices okay. one direction against the other. Yeah, right. okay. So a lot of their movement is making the absolute minimum possible drag. Yeah. And they'll just appear. Or they'll just disappear. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen them up, um, once I 
uh, from work. I had to go to Darwin and we had a spare day and I went out to Adelaide River on one of the tourist things. And it was a bit of a shame that they had you know, um, bait up some of the things with jumping up out of the water, but yeah, it was pretty impressive seeing it. Lots of snakes, and I love seeing a snake and right. seeing a, a three metre long olive python just doing its thing down through the scrub, and then you see snakes coming up okay. next to the boats while yep. you were waiting for waiting for passengers. And so, have you got a room at home um, full of model aeroplanes or models of the, I should say models of aeroplanes? I have more than my missus is happy about dotted around the place, yeah. but I give a lot of them away. So when I'm working on a project, there's usually a recipient okay. in mind, yeah. and when it's finished, it goes to them okay. as some sort of token or yeah. memorial. Yeah. Um, I've worked out that I can fit more around the place if I set them on a, a cut up old sheets of yellow tongue and okay. turn them into a diorama base. Yeah. Okay. And I can mount the claim on that and then hang it on the wall. But that has become uh, unpopular as a bleached <laughs> saturation point. Yeah. Are there any air frames that you're particularly fond of? Uh, um, nothing that's Antarctic <laughs> related, but uh, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and the Pilatus Porters, um, because you know, I've operated with them down south. And, um, what was Dick, what did Dick's, yeah, no, it wasn't a Pilatus. Um, twin Otter. Yeah, it was the Twin so. Otter, that's right, with Giles Kershaw. Um, that was interesting. Were you there when they visited? Yeah, yeah I, um, I was sitting on a ship uh, halfway to Antarctica and had to make the call for them to do the tow bark to Casey Leg and, uh, God, that was, that was nerve wracking, I can tell you. Um, because there was a very small, I mean, and this is, when is it, more than 87, 88, so we didn't have what they've got now. Um, so there was a small window that, you know, there was a big error on that. And, and they got in. Um, the PSR would be quite dramatic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah.